having cancer makes so real the impermanence of life. We all know it, of course, but I knew, at least me, I knew it in a very intellectual kind of way, and now I know it experientially in a visceral way. It's in my bones. Like, even though I didn't really think I was going to die, I know that I could have. And it made me think about it in a way that I previously had kept that on the shelf. And when you have that recognition, it influences everything. How you choose to spend your day, who you choose to spend it with, how you respond to this, that, or the other challenges. When cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. Today I'm speaking with Shannon Murphy, psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner, who in 2007 was diagnosed with breast cancer. She has been cancer-free for 10 years. Shannon talks about her decision to attend to the emotional aspects of cancer throughout her journey. She recounts speaking with cancer survivors to understand how they coped with the trauma of a cancer diagnosis and its treatment, and to understand how this experience could lead to profound personal change. She also talks about the transformative aspects of this traumatic experience and how facing a mortal danger led to healing of a damaged relationship. She also talks about how the experience strengthened her practice of mindfulness and meditation, leading to transformative personal growth. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. Thank you, Shannon, for coming in today to talk to me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the platform that you're providing for people to tell their stories. So this took place a decade ago, but I'd like to begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself, your cancer diagnosis, and the treatment that you underwent. Okay. I was 44. I was living what felt like a full, busy life, taking care of business, taking care of my health, doing the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing, like going to doctor's appointments and getting mammograms and all the things that are designed to keep you healthy. I had actually had a mammogram in February of 2007 that came back clean. But then in April of 2007, I was at my OBGYN for my annual exam, and during the breast exam, she felt a mass and said, you know, here's, I feel this. I'd like you to have it checked out. Let's just be sure. Mm -hmm. She was seemingly not that concerned, at least consciously to me, in terms of saying the statistics are that it's likely a cyst. That's usually what it is, but let's just be sure. So I said, okay. I was alarmed, of course, but did what I was supposed to do. I scheduled the appointment. I didn't schedule it for probably another three weeks or a month. And that was what, another mammogram? No, to go to a breast specialist. Mm. She referred me to Christy Funk to have an ultrasound and an exam. And 
so I called to make the appointment and my schedule was busy and the doctor's schedule was busy and it seemed like we were going to be a month out. And at some point I said to the scheduler, you know, I can clear some things if it's important that I get in earlier. And she said, no, no, I think it's okay. She asked me a few questions about symptomology and, and I was negative on all those aspects. And so we scheduled it and a month later. I showed up early, which for people who know me well will know that that's probably a red flag that there was some anxiety underneath because I'm very rarely early. Mm. I got there at eight o'clock in the morning, even a little bit before, and the receptionist was even arriving a little after me and getting her coffee, and she said, oh, you're early. And I said, I'm sorry, could you say that again? I don't hear that very often. And (laughs) she said, you're early. And at that point I thought, oh, you know what? There is more anxiety here underneath this kind of cool, matter-of-fact demeanor that I've been holding on to for a month. But anyway, so I go on about with the appointment, and almost immediately the kind of slow pace that had been in the month before quickly changed, and things moved into just warp speed. Hmm. Christy did the ultrasound, and she said, I don't like how this looks. I look at these all day. It looks like cancer to me, and I'd like to do a biopsy. It was a Friday. She said, come back on Monday and bring someone with you because it's hard to hear. And I remember so vividly that moment of feeling like my life has just turned on a dime. The things that I knew to be true a moment ago are now different and being very overwhelmed, of course. And so I did come back on Monday. I did bring a friend with me and the results were positive. We went into planning mode pretty quickly. The plan was to have a lumpectomy and radiation and She said, however, I'd like you to have an MRI. Let's just be sure. And so we did that. That was scheduled shortly thereafter. And sure enough, what came back from the MRI was that there were actually masses in the left breast as well. And the tumor that was in the right breast was much larger than what Christy had been able to see on the ultrasound. Hmm. So again, things turned really quickly. Consultations, more tests, second opinions, and we were able to change course, and it ended up that I would have um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which just flip-flops the traditional course of treatment so that the chemo comes first. I'd have 18 weeks of that, and then a double mastectomy, and then when I recovered from that, hormone treatment. And that's what I did. What stage was your cancer at in the final diagnosis? You know, interestingly, I was thinking about that and thinking about talking to you today. I never knew. I don't think it was formally staged because lymph node, whether they're clear or not, is an important part of staging. And in my case, there was never a biopsy done of the lymph nodes before chemo mm-hmm. because oh, that's see. done typically during the surgery. They tried to get a biopsy beforehand, but they weren't able to do it. And um, so I don't actually know. Because the tumor was over three centimeters, typically that would put it into stage three. But I think the presence or absence of cancer cells in the lymph nodes is also such an important part. So I actually don't know. And Mm. I was wondering when I was thinking about it, if I just don't know because I blocked it out, or if I don't know because it actually wasn't formally staged. I don't remember anybody ever telling me. Right. That's interesting. That was clearly a very difficult time for you. What were your primary concerns at that time? 
And what did you find most difficult about the experience? The first thing that comes to mind is the biggest, I guess, is the life and death quality of it. Hearing your name and cancer is not something you ever want to hear in the same sentence. Anybody's who you love's name and cancer, for that matter. But there were certainly those, those pressures and anxieties. But having said that, I didn't really live there. I, I think I'm a hopeful person by nature. And I think I was so overwhelmed by the experience and I was in fight or flight that I just almost didn't, I just tucked that aside. So I I didn't focus on that a lot. Also, breast cancer is very survivable. And my doctors were taking it seriously, of course, but nobody was saying, we're not sure if you're going to make it. I went into, I think, kind of just take it one day at a time mode, do what I needed to do. So that meant I needed to make decisions. And making a decision about the course of treatment was pretty hard. I'm a sing- I was a single person at the time, and I didn't have a partner who I felt like was making decisions with me. I mean, I had lots of friends and family and people who loved me and were listening and thinking and talking and discussing, but I, I remember feeling very lonely in terms of the responsibility of making a choice about my health care. But I've also heard people talk about cancer um, and how lonely they feel, and they did have partners who were present and supportive. So maybe it's an aspect of just having cancer. Maybe it's, I don't really know, but I remember feeling that a Mm -hmm. lot. Like part of me wanted somebody to come in and say, this is what we're going to do. And I'd say, okay. (laughs) Yeah, please take care of me. (laughs) Just take care of me. Right. So there was, that was hard. And I guess the biggest worry of course was my children. I, at the time my kids were, I had a nine-year-old son and 11-year-old daughter and they were old enough that I knew that they'd probably heard about cancer, maybe actually heard scary things about cancer. Um, I was worried about how they would react. I was worried about them reacting to the diagnosis. I was worried about them reacting to my absence because I knew obviously I was going to be preoccupied with taking care of my health. Um, I am a psychotherapist. I was worried about the absence of the mother and how that would impact them. But I don't know that I thought about it so specifically. So. Um, articulately as I am now. I think it was just at the time kind of a amorphous dread mm-hmm. of, oh my God, how will this impact them? I'm worried. Right. What did you find to be some of the things that were helpful to you in the midst of that dread? Certainly family and friends were great. I felt supported and loved and the outpouring of help was really moving and helpful. The medical community, I think, kind of like what I was talking about about Christy, she was compassionate, of course, when she first told me, but she was direct. And I took a lot of faith and solace in that. It's like, let's just talk it through and and choose and get on with it. So I, I liked that. And then I think probably the most helpful was talking to survivors Hmm. everyone I knew once the diagnosis was known around the people who were close to me it was so so surprising and saddening of course but surprising how many people have been impacted by cancer you know it was like everybody I met was oh my next door neighbor had cancer would you like to talk to her oh my mother's 
um, had cancer also. Do you want to talk to her? Oh, my brother-in-law had cancer. You know, there were so many survival stories. That was kind of the research that I did. I didn't, obviously, I needed to familiarize myself with all the medical aspects of it and the terminology, but where I really, I focused more on the emotional piece of it, and that was talking to people who had survived, and the thing that came up again and again was the notion that, yes, this is going to be painful and challenging, but it's also, it was transformative for me, and know that, know that there's something that good will come of this amidst the difficulty. Mm -hmm. So that was very inspiring. The stories of how people had withstood the experience that they had and how they had come out the other side was something that helped you? Very much so. Yeah. You mentioned that you're a psychotherapist and uh, you've been practicing for quite some time. Did your professional training and practice affect the way in which you lived through the experience, do you think? Yes, absolutely. The knowledge of psychology that I'd been studying and, and working with in my practice, knowing all the techniques and tools for self-care and managing emotional dysregulation was really helpful. I am a mindfulness person as well, a, a meditator, and that's very interwoven with my psychology ideas and practice. So that was very helpful. I was a little on and off before cancer, and I it really, my mindfulness meditation practice really took root once I was in treatment uh, to very much benefit to myself. As far as how I worked with clients, I, at the time that I was diagnosed, I was still in training. I was not yet licensed, which means you work in a community mental health center and under the supervision of licensed therapists. And many other trainees were with me, so we were all this pretty large community. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out to be really fortunate because this was a whole other community of people who were interested in this sort of thing, helping people manage emotional um, distress. I had all these people around me who I could consult with and uh, feel supported by and get guidance from because I needed to decide what, whether I was going to continue to work. And I, after a lot of thought and consultation, I decided that I would continue to see clients during my treatment. And I felt really strongly that I wanted to not let cancer be the only thing in my life. I didn't want it to be the sole focus. So I told my clients in a pretty forthright kind of way about what the diagnosis was and what that might mean and that I'd chosen to continue to work and that what did they think about that and if they wanted to work with someone else, I would understand. Mm -hmm. But that I was here if they wanted to do it and, and everybody who I was seeing at that time continued to work with me and it was in retrospect, I think it was a great thing for me. I don't have any any doubt that that was a good decision for me. For them, I don't know. You know, there was a lot of times that I had to cancel because I wasn't feeling well, or sometimes on short notice I had to cancel. There were some clients that I know were impacted that they tended to minimize their whatever was going on for them because, well, at least they didn't have cancer. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dear. <laughs> You know, so they ended up taking care of me rather than the reverse. And for some of those people, we were able to open that up and explore that. And I think to good account, they got to see how they managed being in a relationship with somebody who also had some stuff going on. Right. Well, some that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting dynamic. It was a really interesting dynamic. 
So, yeah. And that probably goes on so often with people, but they're not forthright about what's happening. And so they don't really get a chance to talk about it. Yeah. The beauty of therapy. It's like all that stuff that kind of lies underneath. Mm-hmm. To have the experience of talking about it in an open way of, this is what's happening for me. I have to say it didn't happen with everybody. Some people couldn't talk about it. And those are the people that I wonder sometimes, was it a good choice for me to continue seeing them? Or did they just tuck it away and not really get to make use of it? And But at the time, as I said, I was at a community mental health center. And when I went into private practice, for lots of reasons, I no longer saw those patients. So I don't know. It's a question I'll never really know whether it was the... Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, your mindfulness practice and how that became much more consistent and important to you during your cancer treatment and, and afterwards. Could you talk about how you, you used it at that time and how you use it now? Yeah, absolutely. It was so beneficial. I had not been a very consistent person to meditate on a daily basis prior to that. But once I was in treatment, it became pretty consistent. And in the ways that, you know, there was so much going on, who knows if it was because I got acupuncture or because I was also in my own therapy at the time or because I had friends and family who were supporting me around me. It's hard to know which variable was the active. I think they were all connected and helping me, but I just felt a sense of ease of not having to make it be different. One of the core tenets, of course, of meditation and mindfulness is that you can't stop the pain, but you can stop the suffering. Mm -hmm. And that is by not demanding that whatever is your reality be different. Mm -hmm. Reality is what's happening. And if you can try to accept that in some way that it is obviously still a difficulty in your life, but you're not now fighting against it. I would imagine inviting the scared me or the angry me or the whatever emotional state I was feeling at the time, confused, overwhelmed, uncertain, that I would have tea with her, that I would invite her to the table, mm-hmm. and that I would say, tell me how it is. What Tell me scared you. What, what is it? And just make space for that. Mm. And that was really helpful. Right. I think it's so, so much we want to just, I mean, this just goes beyond cancer, but uh, just kind of shove that down. It's, it's too much to, to invite her to the table and to hear what she has to say. Right. And so we have to kind of close the door. So that's, uh, that's an, I like that, uh, that metaphor. And sometimes, as you say, I couldn't do it on my own, but I would do it with my analyst. He would say, what does she have to say? Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you can't, if you find like what you're saying, I know what you mean. Sometimes it's just like too much to go there alone. And so go there with a friend. Mm-hmm. Have your friend join the, join the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your post-treatment experience. It's been 10 years. Yes. And what are some of the issues that you faced during that time? The first thing that comes to mind is chemo brain. I struggled with that for seemingly a long time, longer than I had been led to believe it would take. When I first was in it, I think the number a year was kind of tossed around that 
you'd notice the effects for a while after. And, and how does that manifest for you? For me, it was information processing speed was really slowed. Hmm. So I would get overwhelmed easily. I wasn't able to make sense of complex things at the same time with any ease. There was a lot of memory impact. I felt like I struggled to pull up words. I felt like I struggled to string a coherent sentence together sometimes. <laughs> when I was actually in chemo, it was really, I felt like I couldn't read. People kept giving me increasingly simplistic books and I couldn't read them either. So I took to <laughs> watching funny movies. Um, <laughs> so I've heard that from other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just felt like I was, my, was losing my mind. And I'm a person who very much loves mind. I'm, very, I'm a heady person. I love ideas. I love words. I love conversation. And it was really, really frustrating. Mm. And continued for longer than I wanted, for um, like four or five years. And I think about five years out, and I would talk to my oncologist about it and say, you know, I just notice, I just feel fuzzy. I feel like I'm not on it. I can't participate in a conversation the way that I used to be able to. And she would say, yeah, you know what? You seem like you're doing fine to me, but I hear what you're saying. And you're not the only person that I hear this from, um, particularly people who are wordy, notice it more. Mm. So it went on for a long time. And I think at, at some point I started to get overly sensitized to it. And that, of course, made it worse because now I would, you know, our instinct for confirmation bias, anytime I would notice in conversation that I would struggle to find a word, I'd be like, oh, there it is. See, it's true. I am losing my mind. Mm. And it was a pretty painful time. I got depressed over the whole thing. I think it's when I was actually the most depressed. So like a year out after finishing your treatment? No, it was like four years out. Oh, I see. Oh, gosh. It was, and it had, it had gotten better, but it wasn't gone by any means. And I thought, this is it. I may be one of those people, I started reading a lot of books about it, and I thought, oh my God, I may be one of those people who never really recovers. And I have enough. I mean, I'm postmenopausal now, and 54, and some of the cognitive declines that come with that, you know, it's... But all my friends talk about that in a way and people who haven't had chemo. Sure. So I feel like I'm enough back to where I was. So it, it did dissipate some, and I think in part because I came to terms with it a little bit more mm -hmm. and quit looking for it. Mm -hmm. Right. How about uh, how did you handle just the regular check-ins to find out if your cancer had returned, the, the regular check-ins with the doctor? For the most part, I think I felt held by it. It had a positive effect for me, that I felt like I was in really good hands, and that if anything was to go awry, it would be noticed quickly and early. And so it it was containing, I think, for me. Sometimes I wonder if it kept cancer kind of in the forefront of my mind. Mm -hmm. But I think that it would probably have been in the forefront of my mind anyway. Once you've gotten a cancer diagnosis, that you, you can't unring that bell. And you can go, at least I can go, speaking for myself, 
I can go, I can hear a story on the radio, or I can, somebody can tell me a story about someone they know. And I can go really quickly to, oh my God, that could be me. But with mindfulness, I can tend to use the tools that I have, which is to be able to calm myself and reassure myself that that it's uncertain, that I don't actually know, that is just as possible that it could turn out in a negative way. There's equal possibility it could turn out in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And so I can usually kind of calm myself down. And I hear my oncologist, I saw Philomena McAndrew, who told me, again, one of the things I appreciated about the directness of so many people who helped treat me, that she said, you will have scares. Most or all of them will just be scares. Mm. And so when I would get scared, I would think, it might not be, I would hear her voice and, and that would kind of calm me down enough to do what I needed to do to get more information. There were two times that I needed to have some more testing and they were really trying and scary and, you know, that way that the process can unfold so quickly in a negative way. But they weren't. I, I didn't, I have not had any recurrences, so. That's wonderful that yeah. you had that Thank context you. of that there will be there will be scares yeah and that that's just part of the territory because just having that information if you have a scare then you just think okay you know this is this is something i heard was going to happen it doesn't mean that i have cancer again right it means exactly. i'm having a scare right it was so useful yeah. yeah and i would i would use it almost like a mantra i mean it was so useful Yeah. So stepping back, how would you say the experience has affected the way you experience life and what you prioritize? Has the experience affected your worldview? That's such a good question. And I love to answer this one because it has and it's and it's impacted me in a in a really positive way. And and in a way that was consistent with what people told me at the very beginning of this whole crazy journey, that it will be painful and difficult, but at least for me, it was transformative as well. And I think in a number of ways, first of all, having cancer makes so real the impermanence of life. We all know it, of course, but I knew, at least me, I knew it in a very intellectual kind of way, and now I know it experientially in a visceral way. It's in my bones. Like Even though I didn't really think I was going to die, I know that I could have, and it made me think about it in a way that I previously had kept that on the shelf. Yeah. And when you have that recognition... It influences everything, how you choose to spend your day, who you choose to spend it with, how you respond to this, that, or the other challenges. I'm, I'm much more focused on things that, and try to prioritize the things that I value, gratitude and connection and friendship and um, purpose. So that's good. I can't say that I do it as with such precision as I did in the early years, I remember it, it was that clarity was so sharp that it was ever present in my mind. And now, ten years later, you know, I find that I, of course, get 
bent out of shape about whatever. I play Scrabble on my phone too much or <laughs> whatever I'm doing. But because I've got it in this visceral way, I can notice it, be aware of it, and reclaim it more easily. And that's really powerful to know. Um, so I love that. I also love that it was the whole experience made me rethink what it's like to be on the receiving end of caregiving. Mm, yeah. I listened to your, as I was telling you, Diane, I listened to your podcast where you were interviewed about your experience and you talked about this as well. I imagine that many women, many of us are in similar shoes, but I wasn't very comfortable with being the care recipient. Mm. I was the caregiver. Through the experience, I was so cared for and I realized it's really nice to be cared for in, in a way that I've been able to hold on to. And I think it's much more mutual. And the other thing is I realized how much people wanted to be caring. And, that, and not in a pitying, obligatory kind of way, but in a way that they really wanted to express to you how much they love you and how much they wanted to help you out. Um, and, and to deprive people of that gift isn't very nice to their gift either. So I feel like I'm really different in that way. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. Very nice. How has the experience affected your personal life and your family? The first thing that comes to my mind is how it helped heal my relationship with my ex. I had been divorced for, I guess, about six years at the time I was diagnosed. Our kids were pretty young, so um, we were still in a lot of contact, and, and for the most part, quite amicably. We worked together as parents quite well. But there was a chilliness. There was, um, I was still really angry with him. And when I got diagnosed, he was all in. He was present and helpful in a way that was very appreciated. And I think also just the stakes of fighting cancer, it became very clear to me that, and, and I said to him at one day, you know, I have, I have more things to worry about than being angry at you. I'm so ready to move on. I remember distinctly where we were when I said it, what we were wearing, how, you know, exactly what happened. And he got tearful and we hugged and it was probably the first time we'd touched in six years. Hmm. And, and it continued to um, he continued to be great and supportive and obviously needed to be to help take care of the children. And, but it began a, a real turning point for our relationship and, and now we're, it has continued to soften and, and now we're actually really good friends. We live a block away from each other. We actually traveled together last year with the kids. So that's been a profound change. I'm so thankful that that was able to, to be thought about in a different way. That's one. For my kids is the other big aspect of my family and how it impacts them, time will tell, I guess. I certainly tried to talk to them as many people did during the process. I've tried to talk to them after the experience. I've talked to them just in the last few days thinking about doing this interview mm -hmm. to get their recollections of what happened. And they seem good. They seem like they've put the pieces together and can talk about it. and. But they were really young, and you know it was traumatizing. And um, but how, you know how they incorporate that experience into their lives will be up to them. And I'm hopeful that they'll do it with some grace and ability. But we'll see. 
see how it goes. It's a big thing for a family, particular, particularly young children. It is, yeah, and, and uh, there are some kind of near-term effects, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, there may be some long-term effects, and as you say, time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. Over the past decade since you completed treatment, what steps have you taken towards regaining your wellness? There is the physical part, which I show up for tests when I'm supposed to, I show up for checkups when I'm supposed to, I don't smoke, I don't drink too much, I try to eat healthy, I exercise, all those good things that are just kind of basic, take good care of yourself sort of things. I guess the bigger piece has been unpacking it emotionally. As I said, I part of me during the treatment, you're so overwhelmed with the process that you just try to one foot in front of the other. And some of the emotion, I think, got boxed away and then got unboxed in the subsequent years. And so I continue to try to reflect on it. I, I'm still sitting every day. Actually, I'm even probably more dedicated to my mindfulness practice now. I I'm, I'm sit almost every day. It's not that I don't miss a day here and there, but for the most part, I meditate 45 minutes a day. I, I feel well. It's very exciting. It's been 10 years, almost to the day today. It's almost to the day. Oh, really? Yeah. May 28th was the day I got diagnosed. Wow. <laughs> 10 years ago. Isn't that crazy? Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> 10 years. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> so just to, to sum up, what would you say to someone who is at the beginning of the journey that begins after cancer treatment ends? Hmm, that's such a good question. I would say take it one day at a time, one moment at a time, actually. Self-care is so important. You've been through something really hard. And just to hold that, let it be, hold space for that, honor that, bear witness to that, both for what you've been through and what you're going to continue to go through. Let the, let the process unfold. It's a, as you were saying, there's the near term and there's the long term. It's a long process. It's a, it, it has changed my life in ways known and unknown. And so let it, just let it be. Yeah, I think that that is something that you don't really think about too much is, you know, you think maybe a year or maybe I'm going to be monitored for five years, but to think about how it continues to reverberate for all of the years afterwards is really, I think, a different way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in to talk with me today. Thanks so much for your interest in having me. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. We'd love to hear from you to find out why you listened and what you like about the Real Cancer Podcast. Please email your feedback to realcancerpodcast at gmail.com and leave a review on iTunes. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to Real Cancer on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Real Cancer on Twitter at Real Cancer Pod 
Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel.